Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Odds are you know Eugene Merman by his voice. He plays Gene on Bob's Burgers. He was also on Adult Swim's Delocated, where he played Yevgeny Mirminsky, a Russian hitman and aspiring stand-up. In real life, he's a great stand-up comedian. For 10 years, he ran the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival in New York City. The festival was absurd and brilliant. There was the time that Ira Glass got super hammered on stage. There were sessions with a licensed therapist in a bouncy house. The history of the festival is recounted in the new documentary, It Started as a Joke. In it, comics like Kristen Schaal, Kumail Nanjiani, and Reggie Watts talk about how Brooklyn's alt-comedy scene grew up around the festival. But it's also a story about Eugene and his family. When a lot of his friends moved to L.A., he stayed behind on the East Coast. His wife, Katie, was battling cancer. She died earlier this year. It's a beautiful, touching documentary with plenty of laughs to make things go down a little easier. Here's a bit of Eugene Merman performing stand-up at the final farewell show at the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival. A friend of mine recently told me that when we were in elementary school, our teacher told her to not be my friend because I was a loser. (laughs) That's the 80s for you. And then to prove it, she showed her my test scores. I know. What, I get that you could show a test that proves that someone is bad at math, but what's the test that proves someone is a loser? Like, was the question, like, what's your favorite food? And I was like, sour cream. <laughs> Who's your favorite band? My rabbi. <laughs> oh, that... That kid is. <laughs> Eugene Merman, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. Now, are you talking to me from uh, Cape Cod? I am, yeah. I'm on Cape Cod right now in my home talking to you. You moved to Cape Cod a few years ago. Uh, it's an unusual show business destination. Uh, how did you end up living there? I... I'm now only focused on recreating one crazy summer, so it's a very reasonable move. (laughs) So at the time now in, I don't know, 2014 or so, my wife and I bought a house here on Cape Cod with sort of the idea that, well, one, to be able to see family who's in Massachusetts uh, more and to be closer to family. And then when we moved here full time from Brooklyn, which was you know, probably actually half a year, a year after that, it was with sort of the idea that we would eventually be in the Boston area um, and sort of split our time. And 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 we are, are well, I am with my son, um, partially in Somerville uh, now. Was there a reason that you ended up committing to it full time? Yeah, it was. Well, I mean, there were several reasons. One was that, um, I mean, that Katie had terminal cancer and we wanted to be near family um, and that we also wanted to have a son and I mean our child who turned out to be a son 
um, it just made sense since we had bought a house on Cape Cod to live in that house and be closer to family. So it was, it was largely a, a decision to be near family and also, you know, not far from where she was going to get treatment, um, which was in Boston, and then eventually to be in the Boston area. It's both the time to reconfigure your life. And I imagine also like kind of a, a difficult time to reconfigure your life when you and your wife find out that, that she has terminal cancer. Like it's a, it's a really big change that's necessary, but also, you know, what a, what a hard time to do it. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. We did a lot of the things that I guess, I mean, I guess moving is very, it's stressful. Um, but seems, seems not as stressful, uh, in comparison to terminal cancer. <laughs> yeah. That's very fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's like a list of things that are stressful. We did a lot of them. We really tried to tick off all the stuff that could stress people out. The one thing that we never got to together was the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. How are you holding up? I am not a fan of the pandemic, I'll be honest. I'm doing okay, but I don't like it and I look forward to it being over in, I don't know, one to 18 months, I guess. Are there things that you've found in this weird circumstance that you weren't expecting to find? In, in a certain way, so much of what we were doing before and, you know, doing on the Cape is in ways, you know, sort of what, what I'd been doing in the years past is partially what I'm doing now. I don't, I don't know that I've found. Um, I think that right now there's just a certain unknown, like, you know, will, will things open up in two months in more? Will there be some treatments? Like, will our hospitals, like there's just so much uncertainty that I find that uncertainty was something that we had lived with for six years, essentially. I mean, Katie had had cancer and then, you know, it went away through treatment and surgery and then it came back. And when it came back, it was terminal and her life expectancy was sort of two to five years and she lived for six and we, you know, sort of lived month to month because we knew that, you know, that was about how much time it would take for things to, you know, if she switched treatments or if a treatment stopped working, you know, it'd take a month or two kind of to see if the new treatment was working or not. And we rarely plan things for more than a month in advance. So, so in that sense, I think one of the things that's hard about this is that I did expect for there to be, you know, this idea of figuring out how to deal with grief and how to, you know, help Ollie and help me and, you know, and, and then it's like, now we're sort of in a similar situation where it's, you know, again, sort of month to month, except it's because of a pandemic. Do you have other family with you or is it just the two of you? We have, uh, so on the Cape, uh, our, our nanny is, is here and she's at home quarantined with her daughter, but, but she comes and, and helps. 
So I don't have any, fa- I mean, there's family in Massachusetts, but I'm, it's basically, you know, our, our sort of little bubble. I mean, even just, just to have a person come sometimes feels like a big difference to me. Yes. You know yes. What I mean? Having a person come sometimes is, is, is incredible. It is. Yeah. No, it's, um, it is great. Uh, yeah. I think that, you know, um, is, are these interviews normal? I'm like, is this too dour? Like, but yes. We'll probably get less dour eventually. It just sort of ended up starting here. I don't know. It's just going to be like people are like, just the idea of people, I don't know, driving aimlessly in their cars being like, I was already depressed. Like, this is not helping. <laughs> I thought this was an interview. I thought this was a comedy show. Like, don't you, don't you have one... Like, what's one nice thing that's happened? And I'm like, nothing. I thought there would be a brief peace and there is none. No, but I have been cooking a lot. Um, because I'm not allowed to go anywhere because of the pandemic. I mean, I like cooking. I mean, I've been, I mean, successfully uh, looking up local farms and I found one not far away that delivers. So I've, today I got some sausage and chicken hearts and eggs. I'm not a lunatic, um, but that's what they, they they had. But it's so I'm doing fun projects, like ordering chicken hearts, <laughs> and fig- I imagine also figuring out what you do with chicken hearts. Oh, you know, you you grill them. I didn't have I I didn't have a chicken heart recipe that I knew offhand, though I've made them before. One of the stories in your documentary it started as a joke which is nominally about the comedy festival that you put on for a decade the eugene merman comedy festival it started as a joke being a reference to the fact that the festival itself started as a joke is that you're a comedian who has always done goofy material that is not about you personally very much comes from your personal perspective but uh, there's not a lot of stories about the life of Eugene Merman in a Eugene Merman bit unless you you know started writing ridiculous letters to someone and seeing what the replies would be or something. One of the stories in, in this is that in this final festival, you're you're actually working on a little bit of material that is both that and also uh, about this real thing that you were living through, uh, your wife's illness. How did it how did it change your working life? when your when your wife was sick enough that it was like gosh every day counts also you know you're a professional comedian you work the road for a living yeah i mean to to, to a degree and the truth is my career involved a lot of different things so anything from recording bob's burgers to touring and doing stand up to, you know, um, I did a podcast for a while and the truth is I sort of adjusted things. And, and also once our son was born, you know, I toured significantly less because I was, you know, basically the primary caretaker, you know, I would do stand up like, I mean, I, I would, I, I, I would do some stuff, some stuff locally, or I would, you know, I would sort of like I did, the longest thing I did was a tour for a few, for three and a half weeks in uh, the UK with, with Flight of the Concords now maybe two years ago. And other than that, I did very few shows, actually. 
or would do like little stints here and there. You know, we, we tried to, I mean, again, at every given point, you're just trying to make the best decision you can. So I toured a great deal less, um, and was home a lot more, but you know, part of that, well, so moving to Cape Cod, that, that was sort of the expectation anyway. Was it harder for you to find space in your life or uh, define space in your life to uh, be a goof and <laughs> generate the kind of goofy stuff that you do on stage? Well, part of it is that everything, you know, it's true that my stand-up isn't necessarily that personal always, but everything was sort of about things happening in my life. And then so much of my life had increasingly become about sort of, you know, having cancer be a part of it, that it felt like it was, you know, and, and, and there were funny things and things to joke about. And Katie and I joked about lots of things, you know, you know, there was also in 2015, I put out an album that was a nine volumes and a lot of ridiculous stuff. And we were recording it, me and two friends, Matt Savage and Christian Kandari recorded it in Boston. And it had a lot of really, really silly things, a lot of dumb things. So in that sense, it was an outlet for doing really silly stuff during this time. And then, yeah, I mean, I think that... um you, you just, I just found different outlets, but yes, I was, I mean, I also was just sort of focused on being at home more than, you know, uh, stand up. Why do you think you spent a lot of time and effort in the last few years, especially putting together a comedy festival that was not by all accounts, not particularly profitable and you know maybe the maybe the math didn't uh, stack up if you're matching dollars to minutes. Why was it important to you? Um, I mean, in general, I think community has always been important to me, and you know, working with friends. And so Julie and I, you know, loved doing it. But she had moved to Massachusetts, and I had also moved to Massachusetts, and so it, you know, I think became. I think we basically did the festival maybe twice, potentially three times when we weren't living in, in New York. I, I mean, me certainly. I, I think that we had sort of had this idea of doing it um, for 10 years. I think once we had sort of started doing it, what was, sorry, was the question, why, why did we keep doing it? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we only did it two more times after we left. And also just everyone was leaving. It was really fun. I mean, I mean, the answer really is that it was very, very enjoyable. It was wonderful to see people and friends and work with friends on stuff. And it was lovely to go back to New York and, and put on these shows and see people. So, you know, but, but as everyone moved to LA and as we left, it became increasingly harder. You know, at one point, there were very few flights booked and very little travel and very few accommodations. But then, you know, eventually we added accommodations and travel for us. And, you know, there was just a lot of logistics aside from all the sort of silly stuff we would do. So, you know, the reason we kept doing it was because it was enjoyable. And then the reason we stopped is because it wasn't exactly feasible and our lives had become more complicated. And, you know, we had kids and, and Katie was sick and it, it was just not, fully realistic to put in all this effort and go go back to New York, especially when so many people had also moved. 
what are some of the silliest things that you did at the festival that you uh, are happy that you did? Um, we had, so we had an eye contact booth. We did it, I think, a few times, which was basically a cardboard box that I would sit in and you could make eye contact with me. Um, and that was really nice. Um, one year, wait, wait, we had hold, an on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want, Eugene, I want to hear about the other things, but you said. Sorry, did I say that like it was normal? Because I keep thinking, like, hey, you get it, an eye contact booth where you can make eye contact with someone. Honestly, I think the part that threw me was not even the fact that you did an eye contact booth. I've seen many interesting okay. things that you've done over the years. It was that you said, and uh -huh. that was nice. Like, it sounds, it sounds so hard to me <laughs> to make eye contact pe with people who come up to your booth. Well, it was mostly that there was just a slit in it and you could, you know, the only part that was uh, unpleasant is sometimes people would come right up to it and just stare at me like it was a staring contest when the point of it was just to make eye contact and move on. Um, <laughs> I think we eventually some year... I think we did it like three times and maybe the last year I had to put like a velvet rope or something so that people stopped like <laughs> breathing into my eye, eye slit. Uh, yeah, it was, but it was fun because, because also like a lot of it was, you would just hear people being like, what is that? Oh, I, I think that's Eugene. Is that Eugene? And then I, 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 would, I would make eye contact. <laughs> we also had an awkward party bus, which was a pretty fun party bus. And I made a, a really great mix and every other song was a Harry Chapin song. <laughs> and also our friend Teresa, uh, who was an actress, sat on the bus crying. And I had a lot of people come up to me. You know, there was a sign that said awkward party bus. Um, and I had a lot of people come up to me and be like, I was on the bus. It was really weird. Like there was someone crying and music kept changing like it was it was like yeah it, it was awkward right <laughs> but it felt somehow like it was an accident to people which was to me very enjoyable that for some reason even though we said exactly what it was they still were like huh it seems weird here was it hard to live somewhere else after you had invested a lot of your heart into uh community that was both um you know both kind of aesthetically driven or personality driven that it was a community of people of like-minded artists but also geographically focused that it was like people who lived in new york and especially in in brooklyn was it hard to leave that behind um, what was, I think really hard is actually leaving the people that are still there behind, but so many of my friends had moved to LA and so much of the scene in that sense was changing in terms of like, for a long time, going to shows meant also meeting up with your friends and seeing your friends and, and spending time with them. But then as many of them moved, you know, and, and your life sort of changed and, you know, you, you know, have a family or an eventual family then like, you know, much, the bigger difference in my life was like having a child than, than moving to Cape Cod from New York in a sense, because, you know, I was, lar I would have been largely home anyway. Um, so, so I think that by the time we were moving, also by the time we were moving so much in a sense had changed and, and our priorities were, were sort of different, but yeah, it was in a sense hard to leave 
people and obviously the sort of like, you know, majesty of New York. But um, by the time also like we were coming here, I was like, I'm going to, if I bought a chair, I could put it anywhere. Like I don't have to throw out a bed because I have a chair. (laughs) So I think like there's just a thing to New York. We're just, and, and our apartment was like lovely. It had, it had, like two balconies there was like a, a nice deck you could sit outside it was it was like you know i don't know like you could you could have 10 people outside or something like that so that's like v- very pleasant and i remember my mom seeing our apartment uh and just being like wow this is like a really nice student apartment which and she was like <laughs> not wrong you, you, you know what i mean so so there's just something to like I have a yard and a swing set here for Ollie and like I, I have a little fire pit and, and it's and it's lovely. And also a lot of my friends and family are in Massachusetts. And so, you know, there is somewhat of an element of leaving, you know, a, a beloved professional community behind. But there's also trains um, and we would go visit and people would come and visit us and you know, I had, when I first moved to New York in 2000, I remember missing, you know, a lot of my friends in Boston a lot. And then I was like, wait, I can just go there. It's just, it's very close by. So, so I think that in general, I would put effort into the things that were important to me, which, so, 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 you know, that's, that's sort of, so, so it was in one way hard to leave New York, but it was also really great to have space and have friends and family be able to visit on the Cape. More with Eugene Merman still to come. After the break, we'll ask him what it was like saying goodbye to the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival and what he has in store for the future. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. We're spending more time at home than ever before. So now's a great time to finally adopt a dog, right? Socialization is going to be harder because socialization and social distancing uh, are definitely at odds. (laughs) So before you decide to adopt a canine companion during quarantine, listen and subscribe to NPR's Life Kit. Hey, thanks for coming. Thank you. you. These are real podcast listeners, not actors. We took the identifying marks off this podcast. Just tell me your impressions. It's really sexy. My first thought is like, Radiolab? Definitely something popular. Yeah, really popular. A hit show. But funny, too. Like, does Tina Fey have a podcast? Or the Marx Brothers? Yeah, is this podcast Radiolab, but hosted by the Marx Brothers? And sexy, like Sade. It reminds me of Sade. Exactly. And they're all riding in a BMW. Close but not quite. Take a look behind these panels. And then watch this rocket blast off into space. And there's the pies we made you. Now, let's show you the podcast. Wow, it was Jordan Jesse Go. Jordan Jesse Go? Hold on. Oh. Oh. Oh my goodness. That was 514 J.D. Power & Associates Podcasting Awards. That was really scary. But compelling. I guess I should definitely subscribe to Jordan Jesse Go. Um, yeah. I'd say so. Jordan Jesse Go, a real podcast. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
Eugene Merman is my guest. He's a stand-up comic and actor. You've heard his voice on Bob's Burgers, where he plays Gene. He's also worked on Archer, Delocated, and Flight of the Concords. For 10 years, he and Julie Clemsmith ran the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival in New York City. It was a fun, weird celebration of Brooklyn's alternative comedy scene. The festival is being commemorated in a documentary directed by Clem Smith. It's called It Started as a Joke. Have you worked on uh, Bob's Burgers recently? Do you do you have a booth at your house or you uh, uh, usually go in um, somewhere? I record like, so we, they sent us like the, the mic I'm recording now with, um, they sent us stuff just for ADR, uh, for additional dialogue recording. So just like a few lines, um, you know, to fill in for episodes we'd recorded. You know, the, re- the stuff we're recording right now or what, you know, before... Uh, the lockdown was, I think, largely for next year, for our episodes for next year, you know, because I think it sort of, sort of takes nine to 12 months to kind of make an episode. So I haven't gone in. I do have a, a booth I had made in Somerville, but not with the intention of recording like stuff for television with the intention of just making weird, fun things with friends. Um, so I, I don't know, but, you know, I mean, we, we were recording and I was recording and, you know, it was basically, we record sort of two or three times a, a month, essentially for, for much of the year. Bob's Burgers is a really special show. Um, uh, it's, I mean, it's for one thing, really funny, but I think also it has a sweetness in the heart of it that attracts a really special kind of fan. At least that's my, my perception from, from the outside that there is this, um, for one thing, a a lot of kids, you know, it's a lot of kids entree Mm -hmm. into sophisticated comedy, but also just, uh, just various kinds of, of sweetums. Um, just sweethearts love the show because it's such a sweet show. Uh, and it's so rare to get a show that has that kind of heart that is also, funny to somebody who really cares about sophisticated comedy. Um, Yes. uh, And I I wonder if you ever, if you ever get a chance to uh, interact with um, the people to whom the, to to whom the show means a lot. Um, I do. Um, I mean, uh, at Comic-Con or various random, like at, at conventions, I mean, in general people, uh, you know, send me messages and I see people in the world, um, who say that it, that it means a lot to them. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think a lot of that is, you know, obviously Lauren Bouchard who created the show and sort of put it all together. He cast each of us, you know, and then we together made the demo for, for Bob's burgers, um, over a period of a few years. And yeah, I, I love that it's something that like families watch together and that a lot of people find comfort in it and they find it to be very sweet. You know, I think that's a really great quality of the show. I, I swear I wasn't leading into this because I only just remembered it just now. But, you know, you were on, uh, I, the co-host or uh, the second banana on another podcast called Judge John Hodgman. And there was an episode that you were on and, and the situation yep. was that a, a dad 
a dad and his daughter, I believe it was, had seen you like in a store or something, like a grocery store or something. At the Milwaukee Public Market. There you go. And had not said anything because uh, the daughter was embarrassed. You know, she was she was like 12 or 13. Sure. And yeah. John Hodgman, John Hodgman, the host of the show, got these two on the show. They laid out this thing. I think the dad was trying to be a uh, was trying to be a pushy, cool dad and say that she should have talked to you or something. And uh, mm-hmm. Hodgman called you on the phone. And, and when you called in, this sweet girl, and she was really lovely, very bright, um, she was in tears because, because you were talking to her. And it was the sweetest thing in the world. And, you know, like we get, when we do live shows, we've, we have sometimes kids come to the live shows, you know, often, you know, 10 or 12 year olds is probably our top kid demographic, sometimes teenagers. And Mm -hmm. they're like always wearing a Bob's Burgers (laughs) t-shirt. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like it's Mm -hmm. these really, it's these really sweet gifted kids. You know what I mean? Yes. We're inspiring a new generation of geniuses, of kind hearted (laughs) geniuses. But like, I really think you might not be inspiring them, but they, at, the, at the very least, you're uh, we're inspiring uh, you're their them. favorite. No, you're sorry, their favorite ahead. show to watch yeah. after school or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, what a what a wonderful role to get to play in the entertainment industry. It it is. I mean, and also, I mean, it's you know, uh, it's recorded with friends I've known a lot of the people for a long time. You know, Lauren, I you know have known when he, from when he lived in Boston and worked on Dr. Katz. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, it is a really wonderful show, you know, to work on. Um, I, I do feel very fortunate, um, for that and to have met these people and get to work with them and that it also means so much to all these people. Making this documentary, did you feel, uh, did you feel, proud of the work that you've done on this festival over this over this decade yes um you know julie and i and it's and you know i say this because julie is really she's as much the festival as as i am and she directed the movie but because she directed the movie she could insert herself as much or as little as she wanted but uh, I, you know, we'd always wanted to sort of document it in some way. And then as we were ending it, it made sense um, to try to capture this. And Olivia Wingate, who was my manager and now is a producer, um, you know, really helped spearhead getting the documentary made. And it was, it's, you know, um, it is really nice to have this sort of document of, both this time in Brooklyn and this scene, and then also of Katie, um, you know, so it's, yeah. Um, in general, it is, it is really sort of amazing having this thing exist in the world. You put so much into this festival, particularly, um, over such a long period of time. And I can only imagine how hard the decision is to say, I'm done with it. Do you feel like the end of this festival and the story that this film tells is also, uh, you know, carries the possibility of opening up room for new things? Uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess it's funny because to me, 
Julie and I still do st- lots of stuff together. So um, I see that as ending, you know, but we'll probably still do events and we'll probably still do shows. And, you know, we will probably start a small comedy record label um, and maybe do a podcast or, you know, other projects together. So um, I see that as you know, you know, ending because that's, you know, it's like, I'm still friends with, with people from, with, uh, you know, some of my closest friends are still from college. And even though college is over, that doesn't mean that like none of us can talk or interact. <laughs> so I do think that the community that was fostered in, in, in that time and in Brooklyn exists and I'm close friends with many of those people. And many of those people came and visited um, us in, you know, Somerville in, in the last, you know, months of Katie's life and would come here often to the Cape and, and hang out. So, so I think like, obviously things move on, but it isn't like a clear, like, well, no more jokes now. <laughs> now we're, <laughs> now we live on Cape Cod and we hunt fish and we're very serious. <laughs> Like, like I, Julie lives an hour from here and closer slightly than that to me in Somerville. And so we'll continue to do things. And, you know, me and my friends, Matt and Christian, um, who made the album in 2015 are starting to work on like kid stuff and other projects together. So I think like, uh, you, you know, find ways to work with people and continue to do stuff. That, that's enjoyable. I mean, mostly what's been a through line for me is working on projects with friends and I'm continuing to do that though. It is true that I probably won't put on the Eugene Merman comedy festival in Brooklyn. Well, Eugene, thank you so much for taking this time to be on bullseye. It was nice to get to talk to you again. It had been a long time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Eugene Merman, the documentary of which he is a subject. It started as a joke is available to rent or purchase now. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around Los Angeles, California. This week, Jesus, my colleague, shaved half his beard off, then kept it that way for a day before shaving the rest of it off. We're all going a little nuts in our homes and apartments. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our half-bearded associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Jordan Cowling at Maximum Fun. Our interstitial music is by the great DJW, Dan Wally. Our theme song is by the wonderful The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. Just heard they're working on a new record, so look forward to that. We've been making this show for a very, very long time with hundreds of episodes in our archives at MaximumFun.org. If you're a Bob's Burgers fan, we've had several conversations with H. John Benjamin, who plays Bob on the show. We also talked to Kristen Schaal, who plays Louise. If you like Adult Swim, we did a great interview with Jenna Friedman, who created the insane documentary series Soft Focus for that network. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. 
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 